turn to the reading of God's Word. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along, then please turn to Philippians. We're continuing in our series in Philippians. If you've been here over the last few weeks, then you'll have been here as we worked our way through Philippians chapter 1. And last week, we looked at the start of Philippians chapter 2. And so tonight, we're going to read verses 1 through to 11 of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians is always one of those slightly harder books to find, isn't it? One of those smaller ones that you can flick over so easily, so don't feel ashamed if you have to go to the front and look for the index. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through to 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word and we give thanks to him for it. Uh, Please open again your Bibles at Philippians 2 if you still have God in front of you. It's important that we follow uh, down the line of what the scriptures are saying. Father, as tonight we will be thinking again about the humility of Christ, would you give each and every one of us a humble attitude before your word, a humility before our Savior, and a desire to follow the humble example of our Savior. Lead us, heavenly Father, lead us, we pray. For your glory. Amen. Well, if you were with us last week, you would have noticed that in those first four verses, we looked at the subject of living in harmony. Living in harmony. And you notice the first word there, verse one, if, and the first word of verse two, then. If, then. Privileges, if, and then responsibilities, then. So, if united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, if, 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 then, then you will be united with Christ and living in unity through him and for him. Living in, that's verse two, living in humility, verse three, and then living thoughtfully, verse four. 
And aren't you glad that we don't have to make our own roadmap to maturity? Aren't you glad we don't have to make our own roadmap to spiritual maturity? We don't have to wonder how God wants us to live. In fact, it's spelt out pretty clearly for us. Jesus also, of course, is our model. So he doesn't just tell us what to do. He shows us what to do. And our attitudes and our actions should be like his. And that's what we're going to see here in this section, uh, 5 through to 11. They're profound verses, probably some of your favorite verses. But they're not so much, and they're not primarily a theological statement but really they are an illustration of what it means to be humble. Now, for many of us have probably looked at this passage more from a, a theological statement of what Jesus did on the cross, and of course it is that, but that's not the primary purpose. It's an illustration of what it means to be humble. Be like Jesus, your Savior. It's stated there in verse 5, although sometimes we miss it. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who? And then it goes on. Yes, of course we're going to read and hear and see the cross, as we should and as we do and as we love. But we're going to see the cross through the eyes of the one crucified. We're allowed into the very mind of Christ, and therefore we're on a holy ground. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Humility and selflessness and sacrifice. Alec Mateer, who's got a great wee commentary, Bible Speaks Today commentary on Philippians, says this. We do well to remember that we are privileged to enter into the mind of Christ, not for the satisfaction of our curiosity, but for the reformation of our lives. For the reformation of our lives. Therefore, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And what was his attitude? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, verse 3, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do you know what? As we think about Jesus, we can say, my Jesus was so humble. My Jesus was perfectly humble. The question is, am I humble like him? Am I like him and his humility? These are essential truths about Jesus, essential example of Jesus. Some, of course, have claimed, and rightly so, that's possibly, probably, an early hymn of the church. This would have been sung, these words would have been sung. John, put it to music. I'm sure you can. Maybe it's been done before. But in many ways, it reveals, as one other commentator says, the entire career of Jesus. The entire career of Jesus and it's marked by humility every step of the way from heaven to earth back to heaven again. Humility, selflessness, sacrifice. Of course, we only have one message, Jesus. So let's 
once again be lost in wonder, awe, and praise and learn from the humble one. And of course, we can um, think of the eternal Christ in verse 6, first of all. I just decided to put up the verses. I let the scripture soak into our minds through our eyes and through our ears. Just let the scripture soak in so that we can be shaped by the word of God who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. This is um, kind of Paul's version of John 1.1. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's a similar kind of feel, isn't it? Before Jesus came down to us, he existed as God in heaven, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In the very nature, he was God. He possessed a specific character of God. So whatever it is to be God, Jesus possessed it. Whatever you say about God, you can say about Jesus. He was all that God is. He possessed all that God had. 100% God, nothing less. Truly equal with God. So is God omnipotent? Yes, Well, then, so is Jesus. Is God love? So is Jesus. Is God pure? So is Jesus. Being in very nature God. Which makes, of course, the next statement all the more remarkable. Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't try to hold on to it. In many ways, I suppose he could have, but he wouldn't and didn't. He let go of his heavenly glory, willingly leaving it aside. The highest place in heaven was his by sovereign right, but he didn't grasp it tightly. He didn't hold on to it tightly He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. So there's no argument as far as Jesus is concerned about humble service, no um, passing the job on to others, no pulling of rank. He journeyed the road from heaven to the cross with no hesitation. You see, a top recruitment manager once said this, if you want to know what someone is really like, don't give them responsibilities, give them privileges. Don't give them responsibilities, give them privileges. Because most people can cope with responsibilities, especially if you pay them. Do this, they'll go and do it. But it takes a special kind of person, a special leader to handle privileges, and Jesus did. In very nature, God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but in humility, he sacrificed in service. I think he created it all. He sustains it all. There's no one greater. There's no one better, and yet he was perfectly humble. The eternal Christ, the sovereign one, the one who gives us and shows us what divine dignity looks like was also the perfect example 
of humble service. The eternal Christ, that's what he was really like. But what about the earthly Christ in verses 7 and 8? The example of humility here is very, very clear. The sovereign one, in a sense, became a servant. Now, what we're going to do is phrase by phrase, just go down it, and you'll notice that there's three phrases there in verse 7 alone. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So let's take them each in turn. Being made, uh, but made himself nothing. Now, again, not by taking away his divinity, but by adding on his humanity. By the way, you see when you go through a passage like this, about the divinity, the deity, and humanity of Christ, it's very easy to become a heretic. So I'm hoping I'm not going to make any mistakes tonight. Uh, I'm, I've tried to be careful, um, uh, and I hope if I do make a mistake, you'll be, well, you'll not notice it, or, or you'll be forgiving. But in, in a sense, instead of climbing up and staying up the ladder of achievement, Jesus climbed it down. He made himself nothing by taking on humanity. He demotes himself. It's a, a riches to rags story. He was downwardly mobile, like a king who took off his uniform, his crown, his insignia, and put on the uniform or the flesh of a common man. If you can imagine that, then that's what Jesus did. Still possessed the rank of Almighty God, but he made himself nothing. And then the next phrase, taking the very nature of a servant. He entered humanity, in a sense, at the lowest level, a humble servant. Now, you could have thought that he might have come as a king or a general or somebody famous, but no, he came as a servant. And notice it's taking the very nature of a servant. He didn't pretend to be a servant. He didn't just give the appearance of being a servant. He was a servant, taking the very nature of a servant. 100% servant. So remember what one of his last acts of servanthood was before he died on the cross? He took a basin of water and he washed the dirty feet of his disciples. But before that, we saw him with nursing children and caring for women who were often despised in that society. He blessed outcasts. He touched lepers. He demoted himself to becoming a slave. but made himself nothing. Humility, taking the very nature of a servant. Humility, being made in human likeness. Humility, he became what he never had been before without ceasing to be what he'd always been. So he chose to be born as a baby. He chose to live as a man. He chose to suffer as an outcast. He chose to die as a criminal. He knew about sorrow and suffering and pain and thirst and hunger and loneliness because he was a humble servant. He knew the effects of the fall without ever knowing or experiencing the sin of the fall. And he faced all the tests and temptations, but never, ever once did he give in to sin. 
And then as we go into verse 8, we see another rephrase. And being found in appearance as a man. Being found in appearance as a man. It, it sounds like repetition, but no. It simply means he looked like a man. And this is very important. Because there was no halo above his head. There was no big neon sign saying, here's the Christ. There was no big arrow pointing to him. In fact, I kind of have this notion in my head that if you had met the disciples walking along the road one day, you would have to ask the question, and, and which one's Jesus? Because he was truly in the appearance of a man. Now, the darkness and the sin-obsessed hearts of many, many people mean that um, we often don't recognize, we, could rec we do recognize his humanity, but we struggle to see his deity. We can, we can see the physical, but we struggle with the divine nature of his being. And that's happened back in the day of Jesus, of course, and it still happens today. But Jesus was, and Jesus is, the God-man. As God is God, so is Jesus. As man is man, so is Jesus. And he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. The last little phrase there in verse 8b. That's the purpose of his coming to humbly come, to be humbly born of a woman, to be born to die, and his death was no accident, and he came on purpose to die in our place. Again, if he'd been like me or you, he, would have, he could have stopped the plan. That's enough. No more. Don't you know who I am? I deserve better. But Jesus humbled himself and he faced unbelievable humiliation and he faced despicable cruelty. Mocked, punched, whipped, spat upon, treated like scum. And his response always was humility, grace, love, patience, forgiveness. And became obedient to death, even death on a cross the nitty-gritty of the gospel, isn't it? Death. So that the reversal of the effects of the fall could be accomplished, payment for sin could be bought. Dying, bleeding, suffering, facing the wrath of God, having sin placed on his shoulders, being a sin substitute. Humility. Never saying, do you know what? They're not worth it. They're not worth it. Never saying, this is too costly. This is too much. Never saying, why me? Humbly sacrificing. I think if we had been planning the incarnation, I think we would have made a few changes. I don't think there would have been any stinking stable and there would be no carpenter shop. There would be no ragtag bunch of followers. And there wouldn't have been any humiliation. No prison, no pain, no mockery, no spittle, no desertion. And certainly no dying. 
And of course, our plan would have been very different. And as a result, there would be no salvation. Jesus did it his way. Jesus did it the way. For the worth of your souls. To save your souls. And all along, showing what life in Christ is really like. Humble service. So we have the eternal Christ, the earthly Christ, and then thirdly, the exalted Christ. So in the sense we've been going down, down, down. Now we're, we're going up, up, up. This is the final stage of his career, or the beginning of the final stage of his career, because the last part of his career, in a sense, if you want to use that term, is he's going to return. But verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. That would include, of course, resurrection, because the gloom of Good Friday was driven away in the brightness of Easter Sunday, the dismay and the, oh, the, oh, the, the pain and the agony and the sense of failure among everybody was blown away by the resurrection of Jesus. He was raised to life, proving, proving to those whose eyes have been opened, proving that salvation is available, proving that there is freedom from sin and death and it can be, can be ours. Resurrection. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. But of course, most likely it is to do with ascension into glory to the right hand of, the, of God the Father. Now, we should really have taken two or three weeks at this passage, but we, we didn't decide to do that, and so we're going to have to move on. But just let all of that stuff just fill your minds as you think of Jesus. But look at the next phrase, and give him the name that is above every name. So who has the greatest name? Is it Alistair? It's the name Jesus. The name that is above every name. There's nothing like him. And there's no one like him. No one higher than Jesus. Everyone and everything is below him and well below him. And verse 10, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There are three levels there. Do you notice that? Those in heaven will bow before his glory. Angels and the redeemed saints who have left us to go there, they will bow their knee before him. And then those on earth will bow, including the skeptics and the atheists and the, and the people uh, of every other religion in the world. Yes, every member of the Muslim faith, every Buddhist, every atheist will bow down before Jesus and his name. And those under the earth, Satan and his angels and all the unsaved who have died without salvation, they too will be down on their knees. Can you picture that? Down on their knees. Billions will fall before the name of Jesus. Billions and billions and billions and billions. I mean, there's seven billion people on the earth right now. And many others have been born and lived throughout the ages. Billions and billions and billions and billions. Can you picture that scene? Absolute and total worship of the one who's got the greatest name. 
And on that day, there'll be no blaspheming, no mockery, no arguing, and no excuses. Down, down on their knees they will go before the beautiful name of Jesus. And verse 11, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the last little section. Again, some might say, is this universal salvation? No, it's universal confession. Jesus will have the last word and he will be the last word on the lips of people. Before the end, before the second death, People will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The billions, you know the same billions we mentioned a few seconds ago? With our lips, we will all acknowledge who he is. We'll either do it by force then, we'll be forced into it, or we do it by choice now. All, every tongue, even his enemies. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The, the supreme confession of the Christian, the supreme confession of the church. If you can say nothing more, then say this regularly. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what the world would do if it had its way? It would end the church. Jesus plans to end the world as the world would plan to end his body. Who's going to win, do you think? I don't think there's any doubt. There is no doubt. We have a sure and certain hope that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Just, folks, just you make sure that you've done it so many times here on earth that it's going to be just beautifully and naturally the thing to do rather than being forced into it. Okay, two applications before we um, finish. The first one is this, be saved. We have some visitors here tonight. We're very glad to have you. You might be asking the question, I hope you're asking the question, can I know salvation? Can I know rescue? And the answer is, please help me out here. <laughs> yes, of course, yes. Do you know what Jesus said? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He is Savior, and he loves you. He loves you. He came from heaven to show he loves you. See his love. And you know what he, he commands you to come. Come to me. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow, someday, tomorrow, and the future will be the day of judgment. But in this passage, we have the answer to the human problem. I mean, is there anywhere in the world that's an idyllic place to live in? The world is broken. If only we could just see what's really going on around us. Why? Because God has given us the gospel and God has given us the Savior. And for some reason, we think there's another and better answer. 
In this passage, the answer to the human problem is revealed. In this passage, the invitation to come to Jesus is given. In this passage, the warning about the dire consequences of not coming are certainly implied. Jesus, fully and completely God, the God-man, humiliated unto death, exalted to the ascended position that he's in right now, the greatest name in the whole of the universe, the one who will receive universal honor from every human being. Well, is religion any good? It's useless as far as salvation is concerned. Religion has been described to me, I've never forgot, years ago I heard it, like a cheap anesthetic that deadens the pain of an empty life, but has no lasting value. Don't fall for that trick of having a little bit of pain relief from the awfulness of this broken world by religion. It is Jesus, it is only Jesus, it is always Jesus. So that's the first thing, be saved. The second thing, be a servant. Yeah, I think that's the point of the whole passage, to show us what humble servanthood is really like. You're saved to serve. And we've got to grasp the excellence of what we have been given in Jesus. And we need to fulfill the expectations of what we are to do and what we're to be. And basically, that's verse 1. And by being like-minded, by pulling together, by resisting selfishness, by, re- by regarding others as more important, remembering the needs of others, that's really verses 2 to 4. And then to have this humble attitude of Jesus the servant from verse 5 through to 11. So be a servant everywhere you go. Serve, love people, sacrifice for people. Don't be like so many who by word or by attitude say these kinds of things. Unless I have an upfront position, I will not serve. Unless I get the glory, I will not serve. Unless I am in control and things are done exactly my way, I will not serve. Unless it is central to my agenda at this particular time, it suits me in my timetable, I will not serve. Unless it's with and for the people of my choice, I will not serve. You wouldn't believe them. And by the way, those are all real, real situations that I've come across in my ministry. Some Christians, or those who claim to be Christians, are unwilling to serve, unwilling to follow the example of Jesus, unwilling to obey the word, unwilling to be humble servants like their Savior. And the more I get to understand me, myself, and I, and others, selfishness and pride are greatest problems. The idol of self my life, my time, my money, my comfort, my agenda, my choice. And you know what we enjoy? All that God does for me, we, we enjoy all that others do for me, but I rarely put him and I rarely put others first.
is not what this passage is all about. Jesus did put God first and others alongside himself down the list. He calls us, he commands us to be Christ-centered, Christ-exalting, Christ-modeling in our humble service. He's our example. He's our enabler. And you know what? If we do, in his grace, get this right, one day you will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Those are the words we long to hear on that last day. Lord, we thank you for this powerful, beautiful picture of a humble God and Savior, the eternal Christ, the earthly Christ, the exalted Christ. Thank you for showing us that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. No selfish ambition, no vain conceit, no pride, not looking after our own interests, but always seeking the interests of others. Lord, we have this disease inside us, meism. Would you save us from our sins and would you save us from this this virus, this sinful virus that can take the joy out of living, can take the purpose out of the church and can make us among the most miserable people on earth. But you, Lord Jesus, the humble servant, would you fill us with your very presence, fill us with your your spirit and make us like you so that indeed we might be able to say our attitude is the same as that of Christ Jesus. Lord, we pray that you will take this word and by your spirit apply it to our hearts and minds. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.